Welcome to Iodine Intelligence, empowering intelligent care. Welcome to Iodine Intelligence, Empowering Intelligent Care, a podcast brought to you by the experts at Iodine. I'm your host, Lauren Hickey. For this month's episode, we're bringing you a conversation we had back in March. Iodine's own Chief Revenue Officer, Troy Wasilewski, was joined by Henry Ford Health's Executive VP and Chief Financial and Business Development Officer, Robin Damschroeder, and BJC Healthcare's VP of Revenue Management, Harold Mueller. The three of them discussed current challenges healthcare systems are facing and strategies for building financial resilience amid economic uncertainty. We hope you find the conversation enlightening. Enjoy. Let me start off um, with a couple of quick data-driven slides around our current financial situation and what we're experiencing today. I, I will say this first slide I share with a bit of risk because I imagine many of you are thinking, gosh, we already know all this already, but bear with me for a moment to tee up you know, what, we're, what we're experiencing. So let me step back a little bit um, to get us to where we are today. And you'll see some of the data on the slide here. If we step back to 2021, right, things seemed relatively positive, at least compared to today for our, uh, our leading health systems. Average operating income margin, uh, sort of the average operating margin was around 3.7% across the country, which was roughly on par with pre-pandemic levels. Salaries and benefits, the whole labor uh, situation as a percentage of net patient revenue was pretty healthy. Average across the country, 57.6% versus pre-pandemic levels of around 57.1%. And frankly, for many organizations, cash on hand was even higher percentage than pre-pandemic days. Uh, but the drivers of the healthy indicators in 2021, I think, as we all know, were no longer in play uh, by 2022. Uh, and you're seeing a lot of that here in some McKinsey-generated data uh, on the slide. And they're definitely no longer in play now. Those things that were propping up and changing the way that healthcare worked in those times, government relief funds, the uh, financial markets doing well, uh, bounces, uh, bounce back in elective care um, are, no longer, are no longer happening. So while modest margin improvements in November and December of 21 seem to forecast a positive trend uh, heading into the new year, I think we all know 22 uh, ended up being the worst financial year uh, uh, since the start of the pandemic for our health systems. So there's been tons of analysis to what's behind that, um, but I want to bring us a little bit more to today to give at least one piece of insight as to um, one element of, of what's driving some of this. So if we turn to the next slide. Um, the information I'm sharing with you here is actually proprietary um, uh, inform, uh, data from Iodine Software's own uh, uh, large database of over 900 hospital uh, health system um, uh, uh, performance. Um, and what we're looking at here primarily is one element of this financial shift, and it's the impact on CMI over the past several years. So I'm going to kind of go um, bottom left, bottom right. Bo uh, sorry, bottom left to upper right to bottom right. Um, and so let's start on that bottom left. Um, let me explain what this graph is showing. Uh, this graph is showing the year-over-year -year change in medical CMI, and then also, which is the lines, and the bars are the percentage of facilities seeing a negative change in medical CMI, going back from comparative years 2013 and 2014 in the first bar, all the way up to 2021. 2022. So the lines show the averages uh, um, uh, for year-over-year -year change in medical CMI. And the measurement on the, on the axis is relative weight CMI, basically CMI points, relative weight points. And as you can see, there is generally an increase in medical CMI each year, starting back in 2013, typically on the order of one to three hundredths of a relative weight point on average sort of during that period. And so you all know the math on that, but to translate that into real dollars, you know, over this time period, multiplying relative weight points by a base rate and an emission volume gives you a good approximation of the actual financial impact of this gradual increase in CMI over the past several years. So for example, take a fictional hospital, say with 10,000 DRG admissions and a $6,000 base rate, um, and a year-over-year -year increase of two one-hundredths of a point, multiply all that together, you basically see an overall reimbursement increase of around $1.2 million during that period of time, right? Take a look at the spike 
at uh, 2019 versus 2020. Of course, that shows the impact. This is the lines again. That shows the impact of COVID emissions on medical CMI. They were relatively huge increase, right? Not hundreds of a point, but, but over one-tenth of a point, right? And then the latter stages of the pandemic, 20 to 21 point, right, um, 2021 to 2021, we still see a fairly good increase in medical CMI. It's obviously, it's coming down from that sort of exponential rate, but still a pretty good increase. And yet, as we exit the pandemic in 2022, we see the first drop in medical CMI in over 10 years, broadly across the hospital. And the, the, the N here is the number of facilities um, uh, in that particular uh, analysis. The bars show the percentage of facilities that experienced a negative year-over-year -year change, right? So again, the line is the overall change, and then the bar is the number of facilities seeing a negative year-over-year -year change in medical CMI. In the non-pandemic impacted years, between a quarter and a third of facilities experienced a drop in medical CMI. And this can broadly be attributed to your typical volatility in patient populations and other factors and so forth. It's sort of the long-term bumpy average that we see. But again, as we exited the pandemic in 2020, the percentage of facilities experiencing a medical CMI drop skyrockets to over 80%. So significant change here in facilities seeing a medical CMI reduction. Now, if you go to the upper right, further exacerbating this hospital financial woe issue in the medical and on the CMI side is the fact that for many facilities, at least at system-wide, surgical volumes dipped during the pandemic and have still not rebounded, right? So if you use 2017 as a benchmark well before the pandemic impacts, that graph shows the consistent growth in both medical and surgical admissions in 2018 and 2019. But then what you see is the start drop-off um, uh, as we enter the pandemic, and then a further drop-off um, as it goes on. Of course, now, we're, as you look in 22, uh, most recent data, we're still not seeing them fully recovered. So you combine the surgical uh, drop and uh, uh, admissions, uh, sorry, surgical admissions drop and its lack of full recovery with the medical CMI loss, and which you get then on the bottom right-hand side, is a, a combination in, in uh, total CMI, overall CMI, where, which mirrors the drop in medical CMI. We're still seeing the same level of substantial drop in overall CMI and a number of organizations, the number of organizations experiencing that um, uh, going up even more. So with that all as background, hopefully that was understandable. I wanna turn to Harold and Robin, and Robin, maybe we'll start with you first. Love to understand from your experience, are you seeing some of these similar CMI and surgical volume um, uh, uh, impacts at Henry Ford? And, and how are you thinking about them? Yeah, I would say we see and feel some of all of it. And it's um, so again, we have uh, six hospitals, so it um, affects them in different ways. So again, the smaller community hospitals who were getting the lift from the acuity um, on the medical patients as those COVID patients have gone away, um, they've drifted back to their normal, you know, medical um, CMI that they had. And, and in many of those hospitals, they were fortunate enough to keep um, a lot of their um, surgical cases going, particularly here in 21, 22. Um, but like with everybody, they're not at, back at the level that they were um, pre-pandemic. And some of that, to be honest, is um, a shift that was happening during the pandemic and just before it of getting um, orthopedic and spine cases out. Um, and when you go to our more academic hospital, we're actually seeing the case mix continue to rise there even with COVID going down because we now have the opportunity to get these much sicker patients that we took from a wider geographic rate, uh, radius um, into the facility. And again, we're watching the surgical volume um, come back in that particular facility because it had, we had to close capacity for a while at different points in times. So it's an uneven feeling um, that I think is out there. Um, but you know, truly, uh, you're going to see in some cases uh, a decline in CMI, particularly out in these community hospitals, um, given what's gone on. Um, but it, uh, I would say one shouldn't put down their diligence just because it's dropping for what is the mix of cases that you have. You need to be sure you're being diligent on the cases that you used to have, you know, and your mm -hmm. baseline medical cases. Um, so many and all of the tools that we put in place around revenue cycle are, are ever more important. Um, uh, we just got to make sure we have the right focus. Very interesting. Harold, I'd love you to weigh in as well, please. No, I would agree. Actually, we were in the process even prior to COVID 
we were we have built some new facilities and we were in the process of finishing a hospital um, um, that's about 20 miles from our academic campus. So our academic campus is, runs at about uh, 1,350 beds, consistently at 90% plus occupancy with, and this was pre-COVID as well. So we had um, numerous initiatives to move. Um, as, as Robin stated, we were moving a lot of the orthopedics Surgi surgical cases to other facilities, to ASCs, spine cases. Um, and very similarly, we saw a huge jump when COVID hit. And then subsequently, we, we obviously turned off a lot of those, um, a lot of those um, elective procedures. Um, and even coming back on the academic campus, we've actually seen a rise slightly in CMI, um, just because we've now moved a lot of those cases off Surgical cases are back, um, and and our and our census is back in the uh, on the academic chassis. So, um, it was an interesting phenomenon in 22, um, to say the least, with regards to those those COVID cases inflating the uh, the community CMI rates, and then subsequently people asking questions. Harold, what's wrong with our CMI? I'm like, well, things have changed a little bit in the last um, 24 months. So, um, but I think the key is as well is um, identifying the right information, identifying the right charts to get into. How do we, you know, how do we make sure that we're capturing the true severity? And that's been a number of discussions we've had is truly capturing the true severity of our patients. And that's going to be key pre-COVID, post-COVID, and, you know, in many years past uh, my retirement date here. Yeah. Yeah. I would underscore, Troy, the, the documentation that we're doing is not even only just for the reimbursement that you're getting off the individual case, it feeds into your quality factors um, that, you know, when you get your quality payments from CMS, but it, if you're in any value-based contracts, um, the importance right. of getting those, that coding, getting the coding right for present on admission, getting the coding right for the risk factors for anybody who's in, um, in a, an NA contract where they may have to care. Um, about the HCCs. No, makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think the the broader takeaway there is uh, certainly the market's changing underneath us, but the focus on the fundamentals of cycle uh, uh, and and particularly as both of you pointed yeah. out, document documentation accuracy are key. Absolutely, got it. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, Harold, you mentioned. Uh, you mentioned people asking you what's going on with our CMI. I can tell you across a number of our clients, we're hearing the same thing. CFOs, RevCycle executives being asked what's going on with our CMI. So part of the reason we wanted to share some of this data today is to help people understand that this is a market-wide trend. Um, uh, some of these reductions that folks are seeing, particularly as they bleed into January, February data from this year, which we don't have on the slide, but looks very similar to the overall 21-22 slide change, um, is, is actually being experienced by a broad swath of, uh, of the market today. Well, great. Let's, um, Lauren, let's go to the next slide because um, uh, I'm going to take us to, to sort of a, a next level because um, I'd love to get thoughts, Robin, from both you and, and Harold as well on um, what you all are doing strategically in the market today. Um, we're hearing a lot uh, across the market um, uh, of two things. One, a, a huge uh, uptick uh, in the use of management consultancies, particularly in the rev cycle, uh, as to try to stabilize uh, health system economics, uh, and a lot of focus on cost reduction, um, which, which makes sense, right? Um, and yet, I, what I want to see up here, this is some very high-level McKinsey data, uh, again, as well, which we thought we'd share because it's, it's kind of interesting, um, uh, making the case that, uh, which I hope is obvious with everyone, right, that cost-cutting alone is not going to get us to the next stage of, of financial performance. And just to explain very briefly of what's on this slide, um, uh, we're illustrating the impact of industry profit pools uh, if there's no new sources of revenue. So that's what McKinsey's doing here. So the first column illustrates basically what happens um, if spending increases, but there's no new revenue from any source and the impact color-coded on the different players within the larger health economy. The second column illustrates what happens if spending increases and increases are passed on to payers in the form of price increases, wouldn't that be glorious? But payers are <laughs> unable to pass these increases on to the end customer, employers and state governments. And then the last column is what happens if payers are able to, all of that, but payers are able to pass on the increases 
to end customers of healthcare, right? So sort of different levels of what would happen if, if, if um, you know, all we can do is, is, is cut costs and, and then try to pass on payment uh, uh, changes. And of course, what you notice is take a look at the provider line. It's, a, it's an ugly picture regardless, right? Even in the dream scenarios here, right? The erosion is pretty substantial. Um, and so part of uh, the, this report from McKinsey was pushing on the idea that um, cost reduction alone um, uh, cannot be the answer here. We need to find a way to also generate growth and, and, and new revenue, uh, uh, either new revenue or at least be capturing revenue appropriately for the work that we're already doing. I'd love to pause here and, and, and ask um, Harold, maybe you first, um, when you all think about your strategic path right now, um, uh, uh, both at the health system level, but also within the revenue cycle, how are you balancing efforts to try to reduce or at least manage costs? I'm sure there's a big piece of labor in today's market with growth strategies. And what and what do those look like? I think, um, you know, from the standpoint of things that we can't control. So if you think about the last 24 months, the price of nursing, um, the price of, you know, some of the travel nurses. I mean, we, we had unbudgeted expenses that were completely insane. If you were to look at them, you wouldn't have believed them five years ago if you were to, if you were to look at the balance sheet. That being said, um, you know, as a, from a revenue cycle standpoint, we're, we are focused on the people, process, and technology. So how do we automate things that can be automated that are manual? Um, we recently implemented Epic um, uh, late last year. So we are looking at ways to optimize. So what are things that we can tie in? We have a number of programs number of projects uh, in flight right now to look at how we automate things that currently are done um, manually by people. Um, and that would, you know, in, enable us to, through attrition, to you know, move people into areas. Because there's, that doesn't mean we don't have any job openings. We just have other opportunities for some of these folks. Um, so one standpoint is how do we optimize things that we can optimize? You can talk about AI, you can talk about, you know, whatever the buzzwords are, but how do I optim optimize those things? And I'm talking from the front end. So it's implementing technologies on the front end. We did a huge uh, installation of, of Epic kiosks. So how do we, how do we increase our front end um, point of service collections? Um, and it truly is impacting our back end. So if you think about it, if we get paid on the front end, we're not handling that account. We're not dealing with that person in the back end. We're not spending resources. I have you know 600 folks on the back end that manage um, back back end revenue management functionality. So how do we from from the very beginning to the very end? What are the points that we can actually automate? And that's that's something that we have in our strategic plan over the next four or five years. And then simply, how do we grow as a system? Um, what strategic partnerships do we have? And BJC um, BJC has a collaborative that we work with. We've we've established a BJC Collaborative. I think Lauren mentioned there's, you know, we have 14 hospitals. Um, we have a number of ASCs, but we also have collaborative hospitals in the region, um, in Illinois, in Missouri, in Kansas, um, to strengthen some of those referral sources, et cetera. But it truly is, you know, we're looking at how we automate from the front to the end, but then also take into consideration the patient experience. And that's obviously important to us as well. Um, so and, and and we have like I said we have a lot of projects in play right now to 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 put in automation where we can, and probably many opportunities we have not uncovered as of yet. Yeah. Sure, sure. No, that's really helpful. I mean, Robin, I'd love same question to you, and I've got some follow-ups for both of you. But yeah, how are you at Henry Ford looking to balance the the cost cutting or cost containment strategies with you know strategies for for growth, and what do those look like today? Yeah, so we've always come at it with a playbook of you've got to have the growth, you've got to have the, the cost and the productivity there. I think what's changed for us is in both of those strategies, um, given the labor shortage, given the cost to actually procure um, a patient or a member is gone significantly higher. Um, and and also in the fact that there's just not not, not enough people. Nobody's going to be changing the immigration policy any day soon. There are a lot of people who decided to retire early or decided they didn't want to work in healthcare anymore. And I like to uh, tell folks here, you know, our situation is a lot like the auto industry, uh, the banking industry, and the airline industry. 
in the in the abs when they've gone through these ups and flows of major significant um, reform, uh, either getting government money or not giving government money, being under competitive attack, and then again having their own labor strife um, in in and over the years. Um, but the beautiful thing for us is that we have an opportunity if we can actually make automation work for us. Um, it can help us grow at the front end with the digital front door and online scheduling and uh, patients want to be seen faster than we can often get them through our processes. So if we can open that gate and the health system that can get that gate open uh, in a market faster and turns the faucet on, I think wins there. So we have a lot of effort going into, um, you know, basically galvanizing what were probably 30 or 40 separate projects into one project and one governance so that we can leverage getting the most amount of work done. Um, I think when we uh, turn back to the other side of revenue cycle here, uh, we've really looked at um, um, just prior to COVID, we dropped our costs at about 10% while maintaining or improving our yield on revenue cycle. And we just, um, we did it with a strategy uh, in 2019 with the idea that we uh, tipped our revenue cycle side on, uh, on its side. And we developed cues related to um, us being able to um, insert automation where you could go work on um, very homogeneous work like um, denials on uh, demographics, doesn't matter what payer it is. Um, so we implemented some tools around that um, so that less people were involved and you could work those cues faster. It actually turned out to be a good thing for us during the pandemic because we developed a productivity overlay um, on every one of our single 700 queues that we have. That didn't mean we hmm. got rid of our, we still have our high payer or our high um, account team that's out there. We're working the more difficult accounts. Um, but more recently when we come out of the pandemic and things that we've been looking at, um, so we recently implemented iodine uh, with the idea that it's going to help us pr uh, produce um, our yield, um, put the better cases up at the top, and increase the productivity of the folks that we have. We have a lot of openings in revenue cycle, and um, you know we've been holding opening on those openings because, from our point of view, um, the iodine product is going to help us uh, shrink the number of folks that we need and/or redeploy them to other. Um, other segments. And we've done the same thing. We are automating um, coding related to inpatient hospitals billing with another um, with another solution. And then we have a, another subse subsequent solution that's um, automating another section of provider um, professional fee coding. Um, and we went that route because we were spending a lot of money on low dollar accounts in a very manual way. And again, we don't have enough people to do it. So we were starting to accumulate a backlog, which then is affecting um, your days in AR and your cash. Um, so automation for us as we get into the revenue cycle piece has been, um, is a high priority. And again, we've been right here in mid-cycle. Um, our next foray is going to be um, um, much more towards the back end and, and central billing office next. Super interesting. Well, both of you have gone right to this automation question, and I think it's a really good one. Um, uh, it obviously dovetails with the current labor market shortage, and I think it's a strategy we see a lot of organizations um, embracing. I, I, let's dig into that a little bit more. Lauren, if you want to take us right to slide seven, let me give um, uh, the whole audience some background information here that I, I think might be kind of interesting related to automation. So let me explain what this slide is. First off, um, great thanks to Kabe Safave at Accenture who uh, provided some of this analysis to iodine clients uh, last year at our, at our client event. What you're looking at here is um, research from the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, US Bureau of Labor and Statistics. And it's um, taking multiple different industries, healthcare services, goods, and government, and looking at what percentage of the economic growth in those uh, particular industry segments was driven by labor, capital, or innovation. Granted, over the period of 20, uh, 2001 to 2016, though what I will say is um, uh, Dr. Safavi uh, did share that, that, that these trends in healthcare uh, look very similar uh, up, uh, up until relatively recently. But hopefully you're all seeing what I'm seeing. The massive takeaway from this is that healthcare growth in healthcare, uh, Economic growth in the healthcare sector, and particularly the provider sector, 
has been almost entirely fueled by labor growth. We've hired more people to do the work. Whereas compared to multiple other market sectors, much more of that has come from capital or innovation in the goods sector. Look, actually a massive reduction in labor uh, uh, costs um, that, that, or, or the, the factor of labor driving economic growth. Um, so we've been a very labor heavy industry to drive performance mm -hmm. and growth for, for quite a number of years and dramatically so when compared to other sectors of the U.S. economy. Um, if you flip to the next slide, Lauren, McKinsey would say there's a huge opportunity here around automation in healthcare specifically, a $1 trillion plus opportunity to leverage technology and capture, um, uh, and capture both productivity gains and revenue gains. Again, this is a McKinsey analysis here, breaking up that one trillion into four big buckets, opportunities in care delivery transformation, administrative simplification, clinical productivity, and technology enablement. And my, my suggestion would be a lot of the automation projects out there today from internally led projects from health systems to you know, uh, uh, software or applications that uh, health systems are purchasing likely touch on multiples of these buckets. Um, so let me pause here for a moment. Um, Robin, you talked already, uh, thank you about your investment in iodine and what you're looking to do to automate there as well. You've touched on a lot of these. Harold, I'd love to hear from you too. When you think about um, uh, investments you all are making, either internally led efforts around automation, the use of uh, artificial intelligence, or where you're looking to leverage across the rev cycle, external parties, um, you know, what, what are you all doing and, and do they fit into these buckets or span across multiples? They, they, Troy, they do actually fit into the buckets. I just wanted to point out one thing. One of the things that was important for us was that um, our actual processes could support the technology implementations. Give you an example. We did not have, prior to 2019, we had decentralized mid-revenue cycle. So uh, HIM, HIM operations, CDI, coding actually was centralized the year prior. But many of our departments were not part of a shared service. So we had different hospitals deploying technology in a different manner. So during COVID, actually right after COVID, we had centralized patient access. We had centralized um, CDI across the system. And we had centralized um, coding and HIM operations. That being said, it enabled us to deploy things like iodine, which gave us you know, some tremendous lift. It gave us the opportunity to educate staff in a similar way. Uh, follow up on physicians and deploy qu uh, query response processes in a similar way. And over that period of time, we also deployed Epic um, financials. So we could address um, each individual hospital, again, from a training standpoint, we can be consistent in how we train. Um, to that point, again, want to make sure that your technology supports your actual administrative processes and the processes that you have in place. And we saw some great results. So I, you know, from a, from an iodine standpoint, when we had facilities that we had um, centralized and we centralized them in waves, um, we saw 15 to 20% increase in, in query rates with physician response rates staying the same and agree rates staying the same. And these folks were reviewing the same volume of charts, but they were actually in the, in the right charts. Similar to, you know, work we've done, we're looking at doing some automation work uh, on the back end and credits we've done, you know, we've actually, you know, just like most, we've, we've automated a lot of our price estimates, things like that. But it's just a matter of how we deploy those resources across the system to ensure that we can educate and actually carry out um, the technology in an efficient manner. It's really interesting, Harold, that you, you talked about the, the, you know, the matching of the, the technology solution to your processes. Um, I would think it's fair to say that most of the innovative technologies out there, certainly that we're aware of um, at iodine in terms of revenue cycle AI and, and so forth, at some level require you to change some processes, right? I mean, you're, you're, you are, you are going to have to change the way that you work, particularly when you're automating. 
How do you all think about that? And, and how do you balance the equation of how much workflow change management can we handle to take advantage of a technology solution? From um, the deployment of, of iodine to the deployment of Epic, we actually had project man management teams. We created small groups of people that um, did a lot of the testing, did a lot of the work and, 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 and um, looked at what those changes would be. Um, and we developed, you know, both Epic's a prime example. We had like 22 gaps in processes that we developed and we've developed training over time. We did the same with, with iodine. We said, hey, the query process is gonna change. The way the CDI staff reviews these charts is gonna change. What educational resources do we have to deploy, deploy across the system? I mean, there, and again, this may have been naive for some folks, but some of my quality folks were, you know, we're gonna flip the switch here and it's just gonna be awesome. We're like, we don't have to do anything. That's not the case. And it's not fair to the technology vendor. It's not fair to the system. Um, and I, I just get a chuckle out of that because we continue to evolve and we continue to deploy resources where we see gaps. Um, but yeah, it's been a journey for us um, to develop sort of that PMO team um, for for the evaluation the evaluation we do in pre-deployment in that pre-deployment timeframe. Super interesting. Robin, I'd love your take here too. I mean, first off, you already gave some examples. Anything else you want yeah. to give on the uh, automation? Yeah, I, to touch on the touch on the change management aspect too, right? Because I mean, again, automation, you're asking people yeah. who've probably been doing the same thing for what, five, 10, in some cases, 15 years yeah. to do something different. Yeah. Well, and we in healthcare love to be able to do it our own way. So we love to tell people you're coming to a flexible workplace and, um, the word standardization to people or even commonization, whichever word you choose for your organization, is telling people that you don't trust me to do my work. And it's like, no, that's not it. We wanna elevate you to the top of the license for you to do your work. We want you focused on, on the cases where you can make the biggest amount of difference, where there's human judgment still required um, to do that. The other thing is, um, you know, we've learned a long time, if you don't embed this in the workflow the right way, you're passing things between a CDI reviewer and a physician and the physician goes off shift and, and where are they? So the best that we can make that a common process that the um, customer or the stakeholder on the other end knows what they're gonna get, knows how they should respond, knows that they have a, a um, uh, a question set up for them in a similar format and they don't have to orient themselves to oh I've got 10 different CDI folks chasing me and how it, how is it that I'm supposed to respond so that I'm ensuring that I'm not getting two more queries back because I'm used to responding to Sally and someone else is on so again um, we're not trying to depersonalize it but we are trying to make it a much more efficient for both sides to get what they need and want so that they can then move on to the next thing that's in their queue. Um, so I do think attention to workflow is really important uh, as we talked about and making sure that workflow integration and change management is there. But uh, one of our tricks really for doing that is monitoring it and making sure that transparently everybody can see how everybody's performing. And, um, and I'll take a non-iodine example. We went to e-consents organizational-wide, everybody from the people actually doing the work to leadership, because um, this was one of our big paper, going paperless initiatives, um, got an email over the course of the week on our conversion. And the conversion went great up to 80%. But then you there's all these little hard things about What's in the last 20%? Why aren't we getting there? And it was all sorts of stuff. And um, whether it was the devices weren't working, this, that, or the other thing. And, um, you know, a quarter after that, you know, we quickly got down to the 90%, the 95%. It was the last 5%. And I would say, I just saw a statistic. I think we're like almost 99%. It's, it's the tenacity to keep after that last five because then it's a workflow um, when it's, you can't, you can barely find the other workflow or the workaround somewhere else. It's been fully adopted. And when new people come into the organization, they don't even recognize that there was an old workflow. 
out there. So those yeah. I think are really in, are really important things. And and again, even when we've done our iodine implementation, I think we came and asked you, Troy, who's done this really well? We right. I mean, you've got a great list of customers out there, and and we said we want to go see somebody who's done it really well. We don't have a lot of time. We took a lot of time to make our decision, and you know my team would say I was on them. Um, you know, the organization needs the return on this. So how do we get up the ladder? And um, I think our team went and visited with Rush and was really yep. impressed. And again, we just took their work and built on it. Um, and that mm -hmm. gave them a lot more confidence to say that they've been there, seen it, done it. So I think in any kind of automation, um, we shouldn't get burdened down with thinking that we've got to reinvent the whole box. That if someone has something similar, they're you know they absolutely they absolutely had the same underlying chassis of Epic and 3M and the other components underneath there, and how that all works together. You you get rid of the time of having to figure that out and really get on to spending the time of changing the workflow. That's great. That's great. Yeah, I, I I do remember you guys going to Rush, and I would argue, yeah, it's that's probably not done enough in healthcare, particularly with some of these more innovative technologies that are really disruptive to workflow. Right? I like that push on, you know, leverage what others have done so that you don't have to reinvent the wheel necessarily yourself. Um, let's um let's jump in. So uh, if we can move to the, to slide nine, Lauren. Um, so we fair to say most of these disruptive technologies and innovation and automate. I'm sorry, automation are primarily driven by some source of AI, right? But here's some, here's some data um, I, I wanted to, to use to tee up a conversation here around the topic of AI. Um, because I think what we hear from a lot of health system executives is um, AI is the new shiny bobble and everybody uses that term probably to an exhaustive level. Um, some stats here, 60% of health system revenue uh, leaders confused by the range of automation and AI solutions available. That, probably isn't surprising to everybody on this call. Second and most perhaps alarmingly, and I want to dig in on this for a moment, 70% of companies report minimal or no impact from AI so far. Um, and then 43% of healthcare orgs believe they have achieved efficiency improvements through implementing AI, only AI, only 43%. Now, let me just sort of say, we've got some common areas of misunderstanding on the right-hand side. Um, as a representative of the vendor community, I think a lot of this falls on us. <laughs> uh, to 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 not obfuscate the terminologies of AI and what AI what AI is being utilized um, uh, uh, to to frankly you know promote the big shiny new ball uh, 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 for whatever product the vendor happens to have, um, but instead be far more transparent about what these technologies are and how they work and how they're different right from uh, from others um, and also the impact piece. Now that's <laughs> Middle, the 70% of companies reporting minimal or no impact of AI, coupled with the 43% from healthcare orgs below, that's something certainly we hear in the market a lot. There's an inherent skepticism of, you know, have we seen the ROI prove out on some of these AI applications? Um, I think both of you have quoted, and, and humbly we're very pleased to hear it, and I think is the experience of our client base that iodine's um, CDI solutions have been a substantial amount of demonstrable ROI, but we know that's not the case across the board for, for all the other technologies out there. So, you know, Harold, back to you. I, I love your reaction, just sort of generally to the slide. Does this resonate? Is this how your organization sort of experiences the, the onslaught of AI applications out there today? And, and how, how do you all think about like really, really getting to understand and measure, you know, whether there's impact or not. And, and, and sorry, not to make it a three-part question, but are there examples where you're not seeing impact? That's uh, in many ways, you know, just kind of go through the BJC process um, for us to get approval on certain projects. You know, we put a business case together, obviously like most organizations, and then we actually implement and do a look back. Um, most of the, technology and it this it i love the 60 percent because every vendor now that we deal with that has that actually has a computer they work with is now ai right everything's ai um but we we are in the process of implementing a, a number of ar ai solutions um on in in the in the him operation space and other spaces which i feel we're we'll, we'll drive we'll we'll drive efficiencies and a lot of that is based on it's a it's an easy calculation based on 
um, the reduction employees and the deployment of employees to other areas. Um, where I think it's going to get interesting is when we start really start looking at and deploying in 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 a, in a much deeper way some of these AI technologies, whatever whatever AI means, Troy. But um, yeah. you know, as we as we automate certain things on the back end, um, and we begin to do it, you know, frankly, iodine was an, an easy one because we had statistics around, um, you know, we had KPIs around the things that we were monitoring. So what were our what were our coverage rates? What was our query rates? What were the physician agree rates? What was the physician response rates? Um, so we had KPIs all around that. We can evaluate it. And on the back end, you can look at mortality index and certain things like that. Um, and then again, you know, on the, on the, you know, in, in when we're deploying technologies in other areas on the revenue cycle, we can look at, you know, how much does, and again, it's not maybe not AI, but how much does deploying front end technology with regards to using my chart, using Epic, using some of the sign-ins. Um, I mean, at one point we had, you know, 80, 80 job openings in patient access that we've always had 80 job openings. So we're, we're truly trying to, to make things easier for the patient um, and, and, and put a lot of things on the front end. And we can measure that as well. So we can measure that from a cash, cash collection standpoint. So long-winded to answer your question, there really isn't anything Great. we've put in place that we've said, oh, we truly think this has been a either e either a zero sum game or we you know we've we've gone negative um, just because of the due diligence we do beforehand. No, oh, that's that's great. You know, Robin, I'd love to get your take too, and and in particular, you know, um, like VJC and and Harold's organization, you all have been very diligent, I believe, in the investment strategy here in, in these technologies as well. I mean, any advice? For everybody, you know, who's joined us on the yeah. webinar today, how to approach this stuff and kind of weed through the the the, the miasma. Yeah, much to uh, much to many vendors' dismay, we do a pretty big due diligence process, and iodine was no different. I think you guys, we sent you guys through the ringer because uh, we had a group of folks who uh, had a lot of pride in the systems that we built. We thought we did um, very very well. Um, but I think just the elevation of um, the process in disruption, losing people and getting new folks, um, it wasn't as tight as what we once thought. And again, um, we invited Iodine. We have 3M on premise. They have a product um, which they want to give to many of us for free. Uh, but the question is, does the product really work? And so Iodine actually um, uh, did a pilot with us that really proved out that their results could be two times or 25% better than what we're seeing. And again, we're tracking against that as we've, um, as we've been implementing. But more importantly, um, I think, uh, again, after we got done talking with Rush and, and having that conversation, the ability to embed the workflow is what um, is their point of view is what is going to speed the results. Um, you can, um, I've talked to actually a number of CFOs who said, um, Troy, you and I were at a conference this last week and said, I have iodine. I'm not sure I'm getting the best use of it. And I said, you should go look at the workflows. And I think that that is the thing that I would underscore. Anytime you buy one of these technologies, people um, promise you a bunch of results. If you're not seeing it, you're not getting it, it largely may not be embedded in the process um, in an effort for you to get the return and or your, the adoption rate of your folks who are supposed to be using the tool um, isn't there. And or maybe they're only using a segment of the tool because they like the other part of their process yet. And there is optionality in some of that. Um, but I think what we've found, that the greater that you can use the capability of any, any technology tool that you buy, embed it and standardize it in the work, um, the work process becomes important. Because um, again, you've got a lot of stakeholders who are changing jobs, got 50,000 other priorities. And if you continue to show up in the same way in order to get your answer back, particularly on CDI, um, the quicker better for everybody. Everybody wants to get it off the list um, and get it off the list in the right way so that quality is taken care of, the best reimbursement is received, um, and the best documentation is kept. So um, I think from that point of view, when we go through the different tools, we look really, really hard on what's it gonna take to get the results, the lift, 
And um, at this point, we are looking for people who are, whose automation actually makes that happen and makes the job of the clinicians um, and our own team lighter um, because they, the volume isn't slowing down. The number of pre-offs is, is going through the roof. We have lots of technology there that could be one, that could be a discussion onto itself along with UM. Um, yeah. those, both those areas are ripe for automation as well. And lots of vendors doing that in the space. And, and that's a space I don't think that has nearly found its, um, its uh, solutions. Uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, a couple of things here. I mean, one, I think you both really hit on this piece. And again, as a representative of the vendor community, it, refreshing to hear that, you know, innovation technologies powered by AI, machine learning, like iodine, like others, I mean, they can bring a tremendous amount of opportunity to organizations. And yet, you know, if you don't use them or build your processes around using them and and manage that change management, you're not necessarily going to get all the results, right? I mean, I was going to make a joke about, you know, you could buy Microsoft Word and it's still not going to write your document for you. But of course, now with chat GPT, it's <laughs> <laughs> that. So I have to think of another analogy for that at some other point, but it's a, it's a great point. Um, and then Robin, you mentioned, by the way, um, uh, the UM space. And then, you know, for those that are listening, I mean, mm -hmm. as a note, that, that is a new space for iodine as well. We are um, in the process right now of, uh, of bringing to market um, our new uh, ML-powered uh, uh, utilization management application as well. So um, if that's interest to folks, we can, we can always talk about it. And, and um, we got Roy, can I add oh, one thing? Can I add one thing? Can I just add? So I think it's also important looking at some of your external data, because we've done a lot of work with iodine on reviewing some of our Vizient data and some of our external data to look at, okay, we may be missing something because you're not going to review all the charts. Our goal is not to review 100% of the charts. Obviously, that's we have a limited number of resources, but it also is looking at your external data and then taking that external data and working those things into your processes, whether they're bill holes, whether there are things that you need to look at with additional scrutiny. Um, so I think that's important as well. So as you look at these technologies, it's not one technology working by itself. It's it's perhaps other data that feeds into that um, and, and looking at how you optimize. Um, and I think that's important. I mean, we even have a you know a vendor that reviews stuff post bill that again, we're not reviewing everything. And there's DRG opportunities that we frankly miss because we don't have the, the people power to review every chart that goes out the door. So anyway, just, just wanted to add that. Yeah. Oh, great, great, great addition. Yeah, no, thank you for that. Excellent. Well, we've got about 10 minutes left. I'd love to open up um, to questions from uh, all the participants online. So Lauren, let me turn it to you um, uh, so that you could uh, 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 tee up any of the questions. I think you might want to remind people of how to submit questions, and I think we've got a few coming in already. Yes. So if you have questions for our panelists in the GoToWebinar control panel, there's a box called questions. You can submit it there. We'll get to as many as we can. Of those that have filtered in so far, um, regarding expense management, can you share insights on maintaining costs to collect performance in the current inflationary environment? Yeah, sure. Uh, so with our revenue cycle process, we actually benchmark ourselves to Gartner as well as if you're in Epic, you know, there's a metal system and you can look across your your entire process around that. Um, so our current revenue cycle process, we are about 2.3% of um, our NPSR um, on a cost to collect, which is kind of in that top quartile uh, range. And again, largely we did our biggest push to get cost down back in 2019 when we decided to change our focus um, and, and how we organize ourselves in the central billing office to get ready for automation so that we would be prepared to do that. Um, we always look at both when we are evaluating um, evaluating a new process or a technology. And obviously yield drives the majority of what you get. Our, our revenue cycle team generates about 25 million in what we call savings uh, that they deliver back to the organization consistently every year. And um, you know the vast majority of that is on the yield side. Lauren, can you repeat the question again? I, you came, if you don't mind. 
Yeah, of course. What are recent challenges you overcame while scaling responsible? Oh, I'm sorry, that's not the right question. I've, I've moved on. All right. Um, regarding expense management, can you share insights on maintaining cost to collect performance in the current inflationary environment? You know, I, from from the standpoint of from BJC standpoint, as I said, you know, we and probably we're probably a unicorn here. We we were very decentralized. So again, over the last four or five years, we we garnered significant savings by moving everything to a shared service model, and we had done that. You know legal marketing across the system, but um, uh, revenue cycle is just one of those components. And what again, what we found was then we could deploy our technologies much more efficiently and truly impact and look at our processes mm -hmm. and look at how we can reduce um, our footprint and, and deploy these technologies to, to become more efficient. But that was the key. We wouldn't have been able to achieve what we achieved if we didn't have everything rolled up under a shared service. Hope that answers the question. I would also um, just, you know, support Harold in this, you know, if you can get it into one platform on one platform, you garner that savings when you want to invest in something new, it's easier to do. We do run ROI models. So again, we spend money to make money. Um, that is a methodology we use. Um, but, you know, that methodology can grow in mushrooms so that you have you have costs and you have the yield, but next year you need to do something else. And that's when we started marrying where is your cost per unit to collect um, so that people could be assured that we were best in class around that um, becomes important because otherwise you can keep layering new returns on the top of it. And then you're, you're not really, um, you're not really trimming out. Sometimes you're bringing in costs to get something ramped up and that cost needs to be take, taken and redeployed to the next thing. Um, so it's very important to have an approach about just because a cost comes in the door uh, to get something started, it doesn't always need to stay that size. And so again, we try to redeploy that. Um, we have a, an unusual model in the sense that we run a consulting model alongside of our revenue cycle team. And again, um, they're always trying to find the small projects to close the gaps where we have inefficiencies um, and again, that helps us to keep our, our cost base pretty tight. All right, next question. What are recent challenges you overcame while scaling responsibly per financial headwinds and staffing shortages? From, from the BJC standpoint, I think it's just a, a number of things that we've had sort of in place from a technology implementation standpoint. Like I said, you know, we, we recently implemented Epic Financials across across the across all the facilities. Um, when we've acquired hospitals, and we haven't had a recent acquisition, but we've tried to move those facilities as quickly as we can to um, to our um, to the system wide um, EMR and financial uh, system, um, system. But um, you know, from the standpoint of um, weathering the storm, again, it, it is looking at your processes, we have a really strong PMO team within embedded within revenue cycle. So BJC Healthcare has a project management office that helps with projects, but we have seasoned PMO folks that have revenue management experience that have RCM experience mm -hmm. that really accelerate the deployment of projects that we identify. They could assist us with technology projects, with just process improvement, um, with, with certain things that we've identified that we're lacking with regards to the integration of some of our case management processes with the information that's being generated on the Epic. I mean, there's just a lot of things that impact um, revenue cycle performance. I think the key is to be able to accelerate those things quickly and what support you have to be able to do that. I think that's one thing and I'll toot our horn that BJC has done a really good thing with developing you know, a centralized PMO office um, for revenue cycle deployment. And it really helped us during COVID. Sorry, Robin. Especially no, when we, we realized we all we had to send everyone home within, you know, a two week time frame and we had, you know, seventeen hundred people in the building I'm sitting in now. And I think right now there may be thirty people in this building. And um and uh we, you know, we sent ninety-five percent of the people um off site. We did that quickly. We wouldn't be able to do that if we didn't have the the support of the PMO to do that. 
Yeah, I think the thing that um, I would add on um, around uh, around the planning around this, uh, we do a similar thing that can't can't underscore enough. The project managers really make a big difference. We do a lot of planning, particularly if you're going to do a transformation. Um, and we learned this from our our big project we did in 2019. Um, we needed to do a better job with uh, change management um, around our supervisors who now had all these productivity tools down to 700 work queues. Like how do you manage the workforce there? So if you wanna get the performance that you want, that took us a little longer on that human aspect uh, of managing what do you do with performance that doesn't look, look the way you want it to. Um, I think the other thing that we learned as well as we implement automation, um, We've gone to doing some offshoring originally to level load um, coverage for coding in the evening or the weekends, and that reduced costs dramatically. Uh, but we also learned that that became a, a great bridge strategy for us to automation. So as we're starting um, three automation things that we uh, have going on in mid-cycle that touch all these coders, which is you know, a delicate resource, and a valuable resource. Um, we've just been holding open positions and then um, backfilling um, with offshore resources in an effort to when we're ready to close those positions. Nobody's affected, the team feels great. Um, they feel good about the tools. So I think we're in a very unique situation, like I said, that the automotive industry and the banking and the airline industry didn't get to have. Um, the quicker you automate here, that you have a real chance not to impact people's jobs and lives, and and the people that you have have a chance to upskill. Um, and so, um, I would ask you, really encourage you to think about your people in the course of any major redesign, and that in, entails automation. And because they're the ones, if they love the tool, they'll be telling everybody about it. If they don't, they'll be the first ones trying to kill it. Yeah. I'm going to try to speak in one final question before we're at time. What impact have you noted denials having? <laughs> yeah, okay, denials are up everywhere and it doesn't matter what tools you have. So, and we, I could show you every pair that we have. We look at this graph every month um, and we would all put probably United at the top of the list. Um, <laughs> and they're, they're our smallest pair here in Michigan, at least for us. And, um, but audits and uh, denials are up 20, 30%, and it's just a game, right? They, um, they wanna take more back. We all probably have pretty high um, appeal rates and win rates. I mean, ours is near 90, 95%, but because they're doing 20 to 30% more, we are losing that extra 5% on that 20 to 30 because they're looking. And um, so our strategy around that is really back going through our payer uh, conversations and the people that we are um, negotiating with to bring this data to their attention and what can we do because this is only them staffing up and us staffing and nobody wins in here there's zero value in here for the patient I I would agree um, just to piggyback there's we haven't <laughs> there's no magic recipe that we've developed on how to address um, denials the one thing I think that has gotten a little bit better and we have gotten more aggressive in scheduling executive level meetings with our, some of our larger payers and reviewing some of the denials because some just don't make sense from the standpoint of creating work both for the payer and for us but um and, and over the last 12 months we've we've created a centralized denials team as well so we've seen moderate benefits from that uh, we've seen some reductions in in final denials, if you will. But um, again, you know, we're working diligently with our managed care team within BJC and how we address some of those and look at trends and look at data and then share that with the plans and where appropriate, you know, let's have discussions around how we can minimize and accelerate some of the appeal process as well. Yeah, we've, we actually have established joint operating committees that meet monthly with our worst offenders. And we, um, and then that conversation and whatever's moving or not moving goes into the contract negotiation discussion. Ah, interesting. 
Well, I will uh, pause this here and say, um, first off, thank you for those answers, in particular, the very interesting stuff. But Harold, Robin, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for everyone that joined us online to watch and for those of you that might be watching uh, later on a recorded version, but really appreciate the time and the insights. Thank you so much. Okay. You're thank welcome. You. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in this month. We hope you found the conversation between Troy, Robin and Harold helpful. Maybe you learned some new things, picked up some new strategies. If you enjoyed this month's episode, make sure you're subscribed with Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you like to listen so you never miss an episode. We'll be back next month with our next episode. And until then, I'm your host, Lauren Hickey. Thank you for joining us.